something that is really important is, is that we get to know each other. We get to learn about each other. When you meet people who are very different than you, I think that we learn so much more about ourselves. We realize we need to say this and we need to say that because too often times people just don't have a really good understanding about the tribes, some of the facts. Hopefully we did a lot of correction of some of the myths and stories that they had heard out there by providing them some really good data and factual information. The tribes have done an excellent job in advocating for their communities. And and that's, I think, the biggest thing that I'm hoping this chapter will do is like, we need to pay more attention. If we are going to work with tribes, we need to acknowledge our tribes and what they contribute to our state and to our communities as a whole. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and this week's episode marks the start of a journey into the health, well-being, and vibrancy of Arizona's tribal communities. Tribes comprise 7% of this state's population and have governmental responsibilities across 25% of its landmass, and yet they are far too misunderstood and far too little recognized for their wisdom and strengths. Today's three awesome guests took on a daunting task providing an overview of Arizona's tribes for the 113th Arizona Town Hall background report entitled Creating Vibrant Communities. The work they did was such a great contribution that the report was expanded to create more space for busting some myths, building knowledge, and opening up new possibilities. We'll get to our great guests in just a moment, but first, know that Arizona still leads the nation in terms of weekly average new COVID cases. Hospitals and healthcare heroes are truly being strained by the continuing care demands. So please contribute to slowing down the spread. Wash up, mask up, and shrink your circle. The more people we bump into, the more chance there is for COVID-19 to spread. It's that simple. The capacity of our healthcare system to care for Arizonans is at stake. The well-being of our frontline healthcare heroes is at stake. The lives of many Arizonans are at stake. Do your part, slow the spread, be COVID smart. All right, let's get to it. It's time to open up the discussion about Arizona's tribal communities, starting with an introduction to the Arizona Town Hall Background Report chapter, its authors, the tribe's COVID experiences, and much more, as of January 25, 2021. As is customary, Joan Tamiche, please fully introduce yourself. It's Asqualia Masoso Amyatsavalti, Nepamansi Yang Matsua. No oraivet ank no maswungwat. Bahanbawat in I gave you my Hopi name of um Pamansi, which is named for my paternal clan, the water clan, but I belong to the Masao clan, which is a deity on this fourth world that we made a covenant with to take care of Mother Earth. And I come from the village of Old Oraibi, and I'm Hopi. And my name in English is Joan Tamichi, and I am the executive director for the Native Nations Institute that is located at the University of Arizona. We also welcome Holly Figueroa. Holly? Good morning, everyone. My name is Holly Figueroa, and I am Hopi. And I come from the Sun Clan, 
And I come from the village of Sipalavi out at Hopi Land, Northeast Arizona. And I live and work here in Flagstaff. I'm the tribal liaison for Health Choice Arizona. And so I actually work with 17 tribal nations in my service area, but also I'm inclusive of everyone that I work with. So I do a lot of work up here in relation to tribal affairs, intergovernmental affairs, collaborations, those types of things, really focusing on health and wellness. That's who I am. And as a Hopi woman, I'm a mom of two kids and really enjoy living here in Arizona. I am from a military family. So my civilian life started about 20 years ago now. So uh, it's been very interesting coming back to my homelands and learning and being accepted and everything that goes in with that. But I love it here in Flagstaff. I love that I'm an hour away from my, my homeland, but I'm still able to hopefully help out and work with all the different tribes in our state and those who live here. So Perfect. thank you for having me. And we are further honored to welcome Debbie Nez. Debbie? Salt River Indian Community my name is Debbie Nez. Good day, everyone. I am a citizen of the Navajo Nation. I am of the Cliff Dweller people. I'm born for the Sleepy Rock people. My grandparents are of the Black Streak Forest people and the Water by the Edge people. Some of the things that I often will tell people is that I consider myself not only to be a daughter of the Cliff Dweller people, but also a daughter of Arizona. My passion, my commitment to our neighbors, our communities across the state are really about our abilities to flex our muscles when it comes to self-determination, when it comes to advocating for our children and our elders and our veterans who fought so hard for our freedom and some of them ultimately gave their lives for it. I spend a lot of time in our communities working in all sectors in rural urban and remote and some of the most isolated areas. I'm very glad to be here today. Thank you so much. Joan, tell us about how much fun you had coming up with a tribal chapter for the Arizona Town Hall background document, particularly the idea of summing up 22 tribes and 300 years of history on just a few pages. At the very beginning, it was really daunting. But then on the other hand, I thought, oh my God, what a perfect opportunity to be able to tell folks about the tribes and what is happening Usually when we're asked to do a similar type of a report, it's restricted to a topic area. But this one was about vibrant communities, which meant that it impacted all the facets of a community. So it was really good. And as we got writing, we realized we need to say this and we need to say that because too oftentimes people just don't have a really good understanding about the tribes, some of the facts. Hopefully we did a lot of correction of some of the myths and stories that they had heard out there by providing them some really good data and factual information. So it was hard deciding what to cut because we want to tell everything, but we greatly appreciated the opportunity to share as much as we were able to, to give the reader a sense of who we are as in these 22 Indigenous nations that share geography with the state of Arizona. 
Holly, Joan took that question really seriously. It was sort of meant as a joke. Like, how could you possibly cover 22 tribes and 300 years of history in a small chapter? Talk about some of the challenges of doing that, particularly because contemporary life continues to challenge tribes more than ever. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I would agree that initially it was very overwhelming, but definitely a much welcomed opportunity for sure. And I think For me, it was challenging in the fact that through my work, a lot of times I'm constantly reminding people that these 22 tribes are very different in many different ways, in dialect, language, economy, geography, all kinds of things. To be able to honor respectfully each one is a little intimidating, (laughs) But to give a sense to the reader, just that in itself and highlight some of those areas is definitely the start of a conversation and perhaps the start of a journey. I know for me, it was amazing to work with Joan. I never met Joan and I'm so honored to have been able to work alongside her and Miriam and Debbie because I think we all come from different sectors And even learning from one another was big. And I think that that really is the message, especially from an Indigenous perspective. We continue to learn every single day throughout our lifespan. And so uh, it was definitely really cool to work with these amazing women. And so hopefully that message carries through in the topics that we decided to cover and talk about. And hopefully that will just expand A lot of times we talk about the 22 tribes in our state, but we have tribal folks from many other tribal nations that live in our state. And so to focus just on the 22 is not always what we should be doing. We want to be as inclusive as we can and honor not just the tribes here, but the tribes that come here and live here and make their homes here. So we get that added sense of connection from these other tribes and they bring with them all their cultures and teachings that add to the vibrancy of our state and of our communities. It was a really great opportunity and I'm so excited that uh, Arizona Town Hall really allowed us to exceed our initial limit because that was really tough was like what do we keep in and what can we take out we're very visual people too so it was like let's put this image and that image to carry forward that message that we were sending and so it was a lot of fun a lot of fun and I I look forward to hopefully what this ripple effect will, will take out past us. Debbie what's it like to try and encapsulate the experience of 7% of the state of Arizona's population, 27% of the landmass, all into just a few pages. I think that's an incredible feat. Arizona is one of those places where we can begin to do that by bringing together the representation of different voices across the state and to really bring together ideas that come from the urban, rural, and remote and some of the most isolated parts of Arizona. I think that's really important. Not an easy feat, but when we begin the conversation today, it may unfold over the next few seasons. And I think that's the most important thing is that we get started. Since this chapter was written, we've really had a ton of impact from COVID-19. Talk about how 
COVID has impacted tribes more broadly? Absolutely. I think the sickness that has come into our country, into our lives, into our world has definitely brought forth some really tough, dark times, but I think also is teaching us quite a bit. One of the things that we in Hopi always think about is having respect for everything, everything um, from the air we breathe to the rocks on the ground to the snow that's coming down on us right now. And this is no different. And so, you know, being respectful of this illness so that we can better come through and understand and learn from it. But in respect to the impact that COVID has had, I think in the very beginning, tribes were panicked. We were all scared. We found that the intergovernmental connections really weren't there when we were trying to ensure funding to really battle the sickness. The amount of time that lagged in getting that funding to the tribes was very significant. It was very sad that with tribes got their funding a lot later than the rest of the country. A lot of lives were already being impacted and lost. So from that perspective, that just kind of really was very telling about the lack of connection that tribes have with outside entities and agencies and government. So that was probably one of the biggest things. And then here in our area, in our state, we have tribal communities that are at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. We have tribal communities and homes and families that are very frontier rural And then we have tribes that are on the border of cities and towns. And then we have tribes that cross over into other countries. So we had a lot of different scenarios that came through in relation to how to access PPE, how to begin testing, how to keep multi-generational families safe and healthy through this pandemic. All through this, tribal leaders are in meetings every day, all day, trying to figure how they can help their communities. And so there was a lot of gaps in service. I think there was a lot of gap in communication, even to our environment. A lot of our tribal communities don't always have access to good running water. And so when you start messaging, make sure you wash your hands for 20 seconds. That became a big issue. And then making sure that we had food for our families, for our children became an issue. And so I think tribes just kind of tried to do the best that they could do until funding started coming in. And then right now we're in the winter time and we have snow and so we then came into the time where we really needed to look at how do we keep our families warm? Because a lot of times we don't have homes that have central heating and some that don't have electricity even still today. So there were a lot of things that I could talk about the impact from COVID for hours. There has been significant impact. We are right now somewhat in a bit of a cultural crisis. Our ceremonial cycles have been deeply impacted Very much so ceremonies, rituals that we have in our own tribal communities and across the world, even indigenous communities have been impacted. There are many things that our tribal leaders have had on their shoulders that they have to make decisions about. That in itself is very much the things that I hope that people will understand and they vary from tribe to tribe and they vary from tribal nation to tribal nation. 
our health and our wellness has all been impacted in some way. We've all had some sort of a loss, whether it's loss of freedom to just go and have a family dinner or dinner with your friends, or some have lost family members and friends and are dealing with that right now. So COVID has really rocked our world, if you will. But I think one of the things that I hope is that we learn from this, we learn how to be more resilient and bring that strength forward so that should this ever happen again, that we are going to be able to combat anything, whether it's a virus or anything that is going to come and really try to make its way into our communities. If I agree with everything that Holly has said, but the other thing that I actually am very proud of is that despite the situations that we're in, many of our Native nations stepped up to the plate and saying that we are going to protect our people. Because in some cases, we're talking about 500 or so citizens of a nation to those that are as large as Navajo, where they have over 350,000 folks, where they have to protect not only the human beings, but the entirety of everything that Holly was talking about, our land, our assets that are on top of it to the earth and everything. So it was really fantastic when I saw that there was no federal or either state regulations that were being proposed. The nations just said, well, we're not going to wait for them. We know we can do a certain amount of things because of the sovereign status that we have. So let's just go about doing those, protecting us by setting up some of the borders, quarantines. I did want to just give credit to tribes for stepping up. Absolutely. Coming back to your question about the larger tribes, Navajo Nation is one of the larger tribes, but we have tribes that have barely a hundred tribal members in their communities. And so a virus could very easily take out half of the tribal community. So that was huge. And that was one of the things that in some of the work that we were doing is really making sure that we were paying attention to those tribes. Supai Village totally shut themselves off and they yet have zero positive cases in the village. So that's huge to have kept them safe and their tribal council really was adamant about having their own processes and procedures for people who needed to access the canyon for some of those essential services. So keeping that in mind, I think a lot of times we think Navajos, a big tribe, Hopis up there, and some of these smaller tribes, Tonto Apache is another one, uh, Yavapai Prescott, they're all very small tribes. So we needed to make sure that we paid attention to them as well, advocated where we could, but they also did tremendous work to keep themselves safe, whether it was imposing stay-at-home orders or bringing in some consequence, if you will, for going outside. And Fort Mojave Indian tribe, their tribal council will go and do shopping for families who are positive just to keep them home and keep them safe. My hat off to some of these tribal communities that took it upon themselves to do whatever they needed to do to keep their tribal members safe and healthy. Debbie, tribes did assert sovereignty during a time when the federal government was kind of going in three different directions. Talk about how the example that tribes 
put forward during COVID-19, the extent to which tribal leadership reacted was good for tribes and talk about how often tribal sovereignty is a challenge in other issues. One of the opportunities that stood out to me was what Joan was speaking to was the lockdowns, the ability to work with the Indian Health Services to set up command stations to try to navigate the complexities of a large nation versus one of a smaller community. I think that there's opportunities where the tribes had some previous experience in setting up their emergency response systems, and this was a real true test to how well they did and how they can improve their systems. I paid very close attention to what happened on Navajo Nation because almost immediately after hearing from the governor, my grandmother had a stroke. And that Thursday, Friday was the announcement. And that was the day that she was driven to a nearby hospital and flown from there to Flagstaff. And she was the oldest of our matriarchs. And for her entire family, and grandkids and great-grandkids, we were alarmed that we couldn't go to the hospital. We quickly had to develop even an internal protocol within our family of how do we communicate with one another? How do we calm our aunties who are just emotionally distraught? How do we coordinate our internal communication within our clan systems, our families, our community, and and then educate our kids in the meantime because of the uncertainty they experience. So those are like family systems. So while there's so much happening on a national level for our tribal nations here in Arizona, we are women. We're strong. We navigated the system so quickly. And I like to say that planning for ceremony has given us men that ability to plan, organize, launch, and evaluate what we're doing. I think the other point I want to make is, I think externally, if you're living off of your community uh, like I am, I wanted to go home. And it was very difficult because you couldn't go home. You knew that the science was there. If you traveled, you could be exposed or you could hurt your own family members. And so you had to be very disciplined in that decision making and find ways to connect without really physically connecting. But you also wanted to help, had to figure out from just being a citizen of my own nation and figure out how do I help? How do I get there? And while all of our decision makers are trying to organize and communicate the citizens who were available who could help, you know, what could we do? What I started doing is working with those nonprofits and retired nurses, medical doctors, everyone who was trying so hard to help our communities and said, what can we do, Debbie? I said, pull PPEs together. Let's figure out where we can get more of this. Let's figure out where we can get the masks, the gowns, the gloves, the sanitizers. And then learning about some things you don't quite think about, like your sanitizers, the solution, the formula that makes it safe, and making sure that when you deliver to the command station that everything is ready to go. So I think when we learn about sovereignty, it's extremely important to respect that. But if you are a native and you are not in your nation and you want to help, how do you continue to be a part and be helpful? And I think those were things that I really wondered about is how do we do that? How do we respect what's happening, but at the same time, help in navigating others who are really trying to help. And I think the other thing that we learned is when contributions come to our nation and organizations that are external, but they're part of the internal 
And how do you navigate that? So when you're making those contributions that they're all meeting the people's needs, because you have the tribal government who has their official donation center, and then you have the citizens themselves who are trying to help. And so that was something that came up. A lot of questions about sovereignty and what do we do even as tribal members? How do we intervene and, and assist when we need to? And pulling away from that, I think just in general, across the board, I realize and I've learned that there is a tribal nation, there is a tribal government system, but there's also the people. And sometimes the people may not agree. So we have to figure out what that delicate balance is and how do we help each other in the midst of this kind of crisis. Very complicated. Joan, it was inspiring that among the areas that were hard hit, the ones that were most responsive and most quick to act were often tribes. I know philanthropy got a lot of quick requests and they weren't give us money. They were, we need this thing specifically. We need warehouse space for donations. We need trucking for clean water. We need food delivered to this place, which actually showed a greater responsiveness amongst the people and the structures nations relative to perhaps what was going on in Western parts of the state. Does that make sense in terms of your experience? Yes, I would say so. I think that there might have been some tribes where this really was their first major emergency. And so they were a little bit slow to start and try and figure out where is the need best met. But I do think that Some of the comments that Debbie made earlier about how ceremony played such an important role in our organizational skills really helped us, was to our advantage in helping to identify where is the need the greatest. Many of our reservations, particularly those that are more rural, they don't have the grocery stores. We have food deserts out there. And so even if we got cash, how are we going to buy the essential needs that need to be done? So I think it was a lot of a partnering. We can do this. But we need your help to, in a, as you said, in a storage place or either specific items in regards to the water or whatever. I think that that was really great on the emergency management teams that were set up because in many instances, they might have had one person, if that, who had had prior experience in trying to figure out how do we manage this. So it's back to relying upon our old systems and the knowledge base that we have. What would we be doing If for any kind of a community event, who's a priority? And as you notice, you probably saw that many of our communities prioritized our elders because they're the knowledge holders. And we've lost so many of them that they became the priority and some of the remote areas because those that are closer that have water, you know, all of the physical infrastructure, yes, they had a need. But think about all of those other communities that don't have those conveniences. I think the tribes did a great job in being able to try to meet the demand, identify what their needs were, and even in trying to figure out, because CARES Act came into play, there were opportunities for tribes to be able to benefit from that, that they basically had to figure out where can we provide the most assistance. So it's the infrastructure in many cases that that went to. And I think that Sometimes we think that our tribal governments don't always have everything in place. I know I hear that a lot from individual citizens who are skeptical of the capabilities of some of our governments, but 
in reality, we have plans in place. We've gone through these exercises. We just never had the financial means to be able to implement them. And so this really provided that opportunity to tribal governments as well to be able to figure out. We've already identified this as our need. So let's start putting some of the money towards some of these areas that can be now addressed. Holly, pandemic or no pandemic, the chapter that was written for Arizona Town Hall's background report outlined four major challenge areas. It it actually listed them differently, but I'm going to put them into four buckets here. Funding for essential tribal government operations, infrastructure, roads, clean water, broadband, telecommunications, food, particularly food deserts, and access to care. Those challenges are there, pandemic or no pandemic. Talk about what that looks like and how do tribes think about those four major challenges? Those are all very significant challenges. And I think they're going to look differently across the different tribal nations. And so I think what one tribe might experience as a challenge might not be as challenging for the next. But I will say Probably one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing right now is the connectivity piece across the board, whether it's tribal or non-tribal, rural, that has been a significant challenge. But I had also been trying to advocate and promote telehealth probably for the past seven years to tribal communities to utilize. But then pandemic hit and now we really needed it more than ever. So I think that challenge uh, exists. I think there are many different reasons why telehealth and connectivity broadband issues exist within tribal communities. A lot of it extends to our infrastructures and also even to our environment. The land is really a lot of times some of that challenge. I sit on the broadband action team for the state and I always say someone really needs to invent some sort of a floating tower or something that floats that we can all access broadband from. And so until that happens, I think (laughs) we're going to continue to see some of the challenges. But I think that also extends into our non-tribal partners, agencies, providers, really needing to understand the tribal government and the tribal infrastructures and how they work and how they process different plans and proposals. We have some tribes who are collective of of villages or communities or districts, and it looks different across their land base, depending on where they're located. So that's an issue. Access to healthcare. Some of our families live in rural areas. So I'll take Supai as an example. If you have an appointment during the week, you have to make sure that you plan your week because the helicopter only flies on certain days of the week. So when you come out, you have to go do your medical appointment. You may have to go grocery shop because unless you want to spend $6 for a bag of chips down at the bottom in the grocery store down there, it can be quite the challenge. Accessing healthcare and other food sources for some of our tribes are very significant. If you live at the bottom of the canyon or if you live even an hour away and you have to plan a grocery list or a day trip to just go into town and get what you need to get. Those are all parts of perhaps 
what some might say might be a challenge, but some of that is the norm too. I mean, I think a lot of folks have stories of going into town, let's all pile into the truck and, and go and eat at our favorite restaurant. And those are a lot of times very good memories and very much part of the norm. It's how you look at it sometimes. So that's a big thing. But I think when we talk about grocery stores and food deserts, as Joan mentioned earlier, those are are really significant. Getting fresh fruits and vegetables to communities is very much a challenge. Fresh meats and those types of things. We can go up the street and grab a fresh head of lettuce versus something that may have been take a long time to get to the grocery store and then be purchased. So those are a lot of the really big issues that we see tribal communities having to work through. Infrastructure and government, I think that that's one of the biggest takeaways from this chapter, getting folks acquainted with tribes and acquainted with their systems and their processes and their infrastructure and their government because they're all different. A lot of times we're liaisoning and passing along information and we have a long process. A lot of times people have to really think through some of these things and make decisions And then it goes to the next person and then it goes to tribal council. And then sometimes grant writing is a challenge, making quick decisions, which I think this pandemic was really much an issue when it started figuring out funding streams and how to get money here and there. Some of those paths were not there initially. And so there had to be a lot of really quick thinking and the ability to make decisions. And so I think Pre-pandemic, there were already a lot of these challenges, and I think they were just highlighted even more so right now. But I think the tribes have done an excellent job in advocating for their communities, and, and that's, I think, the biggest thing that I'm hoping this chapter will do is, like, we need to pay more attention if we are going to work with tribes, if we need to acknowledge our tribes and what they contribute to our state and to our communities as a whole. So there are many challenges. But again, I think some of those challenges can also be probably considered norms with some of the people who have been living in their communities for probably the beginning of time. Not all of our tribes have come from different places or have migrated or were relocated. So I think, again, those things, even back, the history is very much something that we can learn from and utilize in working with tribes as as tribal partners. I have to recognize that, that I I work for a non-tribal entity. And so I'm very mindful of those things. And I think it's really important because I see sometimes even the, the challenge in that is being very mindful of my tribal communities and not overstepping or disrespecting, but really gaining that trust in building those partnerships and cultivating and fostering those relationships. There's no way that this conversation even comes close to covering what's in this chapter. I will do this though. Towards the end of the chapter, there is a list, six quick tips. Number one, uphold and value tribal sovereignty. Number two, abandon your presumptions. Number three, learn about each other's government and community. Number four, have respect and act respectfully. Number five, forge meaningful and lasting relationships. Number six, work toward equity in funding 
and programming. As someone who has done a great deal of community leadership and tribal leadership, how do those quick tips speak to you? One would think that those are just general knowledge, but it does not always unfold that way. But I think to look at something that is really important is is that we get to know each other. We get to learn about each other. I spoke to a young man yesterday who's in college working on a project and is from one of the Southern tribes. And he asked me some questions about a project he's working on. And I shared with him that as his project, as his assignment unfolds, one of the most important things he has to do is to look at who his customers are, look at who his consumers are and what's important to them. It's not necessarily what's important to you as a business owner or a tribal member, but how do we bring people together? And I said, as a tribal member, I've learned that I isolated myself within the reservation for a long time. I've never been outside of the United States. I've never traveled anywhere. I've been to a number of states. But when you meet people who are very different than you, I think that we learn so much more about ourselves. And I challenged this young man to do that. And I think that's the same for our tribal members. There's a lot of opportunities in learning about other people and learning what we don't realize is that we learn so much more about ourselves. Being a Navajo woman, a Navajo citizen living in the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community, I have learned so much about who I am as a Navajo woman and who I am not and where my life clashes, even right down to extending a handshake or a hug. And that changed after the pandemic. But when you're among Navajo people, you always extend a handshake. But when you're around the Akamur Autumn, a side hug is always very welcome. Things like that we don't think about. But now in the pandemic, it's either elbow, elbow, elbow rub. But nonetheless, there's things about each other that we can learn. And I want to also add earlier, there was a comment about how we prioritize our safety. And I really want to acknowledge the tribes and what they did to protect our language speakers. There is so much strength and philosophy in our traditional languages that cannot be translated in English. And I saw how tribes quickly prioritized their safety and how families protected them. And I think that's the best thing. It was very hard recently when I seen about three to four traditional medicine keepers pass and all of that knowledge is gone with them. And no matter how many times you follow them to their ceremonies or sit and support them, there's so much that they took with them. And so I'm really honored for our healthcare providers and our first responders to be able to respond in that way. One of the issues that we started talking about and shifting gears here is that we haven't quite talked about the federal or the police response during the pandemic. I had a lot of calls that came from different people saying, we need help, we need the police, we need this and that. And deeply rooted in their safeties and concern were the ability for the law enforcement to respond to so many calls in different places. But it goes back further than the pandemic. It goes back to issues with alcohol in our communities, people who continue to to sell alcohol or drugs in our communities who made it even more difficult on our families who were trying to 
create safety nets within their communities and among their families. I worried about their children who were home with, if there was violence happening in the home, how were children being protected? How were victims of domestic violence being protected? That's a really hard conversation to have. It's a very difficult one because it's difficult on one level is you're going to admit that there's a problem. Second, you're going to realize that there's this degree of helplessness for family systems. And then third is these systems can become so overwhelmed that we don't have quite the perfect solution yet because it incorporates local police, county, federal, and it's been very difficult. I think that's one very important area and it requires a lot of people coming through talking about what can we do to make sure that our children are safe. I think the other thing that we're going to be facing and coming in the next couple of years is our education system. How our children are being graded Are they going to be fair systems? Are they going to be able to pass what they need? Were our younger children able to retain that information that they had learned or they're going to slightly fall back? Those issues are very concerning because we want all of our children to succeed in education. And right now they're in remote learning spaces. My children are here learning and I'm texting them, telling them that I need water, but they're like, mom, we're in class. But there's just so much in every sector that we've got to prepare for, plan, and I think we have a lot of trial and error that we can learn from. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Holly. And thank you, Joan. Through your work on the Arizona Town Hall background report and today's discussion, you've given us important resources and insights. This discussion is just the start of a needed ongoing dialogue. There is much more to explore from the chapter, from your work with your respective organizations, and in terms of key tribal topics. With your patience, guidance, and help, we'll be back with future episodes. For now, dear listeners, please check the show notes for access to the Arizona Town Hall background report containing the tribal chapter, as well as links to our guests' organizations. The Vitalist Spark will be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears. There is a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.